All right, Revelation chapter 10. Uh, we'll be looking at the whole chapter tonight. So, Revelation chapter 10, starting in verse 1. John writes, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God will be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Then the voice which I had heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So two weeks ago, when last we looked, when last we met, we, were, we looked at all of Revelation chapter 9, where we saw the sounding of the fifth and the sixth trumpets. The fifth trumpet saw the opening of the abyss as a fallen star comes down out of heaven, fell out of heaven really, and it was given the key to the bottomless pit, and he opened the pit, and it unleashed a demonic horde that was trapped in the bottomless pit and unleashed that horde upon the earth. And we argued last time that that fallen star was Satan himself that we see in verse 11 of chapter 9, the angel of the bottomless pit. And he unleashes this demonic horror to torment man, mankind for a short period of time, five months. And these demons appear to John as a great and terrible swarm of locusts like we saw in Exodus when the eighth plague is unleashed, the locusts that swarmed upon uh, Egypt. And in the prophecy of Joel, when Joel likens the day of the Lord to a great and mighty locust swarm that destroyed all of the crops uh, in some time in the past. And he says the day of the Lord is going to be like that. It's going to be terrible and it's going to destroy everything in its path. So these locusts then, they torment, as we saw, those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, unbelievers, people who are not sealed by the Lord. The elect have been sealed, so therefore they do not come under the judgment of God. They do not face this judgment because all of these trumpets, again, they are judgments direct from God. Stuff coming down from heaven upon earth or like in the case of the fallen star being cast down and then he himself unleashes this demonic horde upon the earth. And then the sixth angel comes and sounds the sixth trumpet. This releases those four angels who were bound at the river Euphrates. 
Uh, those angels are probably also demons, considering that the text says they were bound. Uh, and we saw that the river Euphrates is symbolic of the border of the promised land, which lies, beyond which I should say, lies the enemies of God's people. So when these angels are released, then whatever hordes are beyond the Euphrates River, the enemies of God's people are allowed to sort of rush in and sort of attack and, and unleash uh, havoc on the people. We saw that this horde that follows these four angels as they are released is an innumerable horde. Now some texts will say 200 million. Other texts will say uh, twice, what is it, twice 10,000 times 10,000. Basically it's two myriads. Myriad is the largest number in the Greek, uh, you know, in the Greek alphabet, in the Greek language. It's the largest number. It would be like us saying, you know, what do we say sometimes? We say a, a jillion, right? You know, so, some make-up number. That just means a lot. So a myriad is a lot. It's an innumerable horde, and it's twice that. It's two innumerable hordes. So, you know, if you think about when you're, when you're kids and you say infinity times infinity, I don't know what that means. It just means infinity. So it's just a lot of demons come, and they strike down one-third of all mankind. And it's symbolic of all the ways in which demons can and do afflict humanity and torment people, leading them to insanity and into death. And then the chapter ends with a very sad and bitter reality that is the remaining two-thirds of the human race who were not killed by the plagues we see here, uh, they do not repent of their works that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. So the rest of humanity, those that were not slain, the rest of those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, they effectively stubbornly stick to their sin. Even if it means a gruesome death in the end. They, they, they do not repent. And that's the way of fallen mankind. Absent the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, fallen mankind will continue to remain in his sin, will continue to shake his fist at God. Now, as we get to the end of chapter 9, we would expect the next thing to be the seventh angel blowing the seventh trumpet because the sixth angel blew his trumpet. There are seven trumpets. Seven angels were given seven trumpets, so we would expect the seventh angel to step up and blow his trumpet, but we don't see that. We see another interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets. It's the same thing as we saw between the sixth and the seventh seal, as we saw an interlude, as we saw this vision of the sealed, as Israel is sealed, and as we see this great multitude before the throne in heaven between the sixth and the seventh seal. Here we're seeing another interlude. Now the question is, why are all these interludes? Why do we have all these interludes and these visions? It seems like John is given a bunch of visions, and then before the final one comes, he's given another vision to, to describe something else, and then he gets the final vision. So why are all these interludes? I think it's a good question. I'm not sure we can definitively answer that question. But I think one commentator gives us a good answer. This guy is Robert Mounts, and he wrote a commentary in Revelation, and he said that these interludes serve as literary devices by which the church is instructed concerning its role and destiny during the final period of world history. I'll repeat that. 
Revelation's interludes serve as literary devices by which the church is instructed concerning its role and destiny during the final period of world history. And when we saw the interlude between the sixth and the seventh seals, it was for the purpose of showing us how God seals his people, how he protects them, how he calls them out, how he singles them out, and how he seals them so that they do not face the judgment of God. With all the havoc that is wreaked by the first six seals, as it was said in Revelation 6.17, the people who are there as the day of the Lord appears and comes upon them, they say, who is able to stand? Well, the, question, the answer to that question we see in Revelation chapter 7. Those who are able to stand are those who have been sealed by God. Those who have His mark on their foreheads. Those who then, when they die, appear before the throne of heaven as a great, innumerable multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, worshiping God, being called out of the great tribulation as we saw in Revelation 7. And the same here can be said of the trumpets. We've so far seen one-third of the earth, the seas, the skies, and mankind are destroyed by these judgments of the trumpets. And what's happening to the church during this period when the trumpets are being blown? That's what we're going to see here in Revelations, Revelation chapters 10 and 11. But one thing we need to keep in mind is this, that God knows how to protect his people. Right? This is judgment being rained on, on uh, unsaved mankind, on unrepentant mankind. But through it all, God knows how to save and protect his people. He has placed his seal on their foreheads. And the Holy Spirit, who is that seal, preserves his people firm in their faith until the end. If you remember when we were going through the letters, the seven letters, at the end of each letter, what does it say? To those who, what? Okay, but there's another one. To the one who, I guess maybe it's to the one who overcomes. To the overcomer, right? That word in Greek is hupernikos. It's the hyper winner, the hyper victor. It is the one who overcomes. And to the one who overcomes, it is granted various things. To, to taste of the tree of life. To be clothed in white. All these things. Basically, the one who overcomes will be brought into the eternal state and the one who overcomes is the one who has been sealed by God. So God protecting his people, though, doesn't mean they won't suffer in this life. Okay? You may be thinking, well, if God's protecting his people, why, are, why is the church being persecuted? Why are saints being martyred? Why are we even today praying about the churches in Afghanistan facing incoming, impending persecution? If God protects his people, why are these bad things happening to them? Well... Jesus promises in this world that we will face troubles, right? John 16, 33. It's one of my favorite verses. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But then he says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I am the overcomer. And then you overcome in me. So you will face persecution, but Jesus says you will overcome because I have won the victory. It is not your victory to win. It is my victory to win, and you get to share in it. That's the point. And again, you read the seven letters to the seven churches, and the church was facing troubles inside and out. 
The church of Smyrna was being persecuted. The churches of Thyatira and, and other per, and Pergamus and those were facing all kinds of internal turmoil as they were allowing all kinds of false teaching into the church. But again, Jesus says at the end of each letter, to the one who overcomes, to the one who perseveres, to the one who stays firm in their faith until the end, I will grant this, that, and the other thing. And again, consider the fifth seal. That fifth seal, when that was broken, we saw a vision of the altar in heaven, the, the archetype of the altar, which is, you know, you have an, a copy of it on the earth in the temple. The archetype altar in heaven in which, under which, I should say, the saints, the martyrs are there. And they cry out to God. They cry out to Jesus, vindicate us. How long are we going to be under here until we are vindicated? And, of course, we see the Lord says, just wait a little while longer. You know, vindication is coming. I am unleashing my judgment on the world. You will be vindicated. And he comforts them with words of comfort. But the seal of God means the church won't face the judgments of the seals, of the trumpets, of the bulls. We are preserved from judgment. And the reason we're preserved from judgment is why? Why are we saved from judgment? Because Christ took that judgment. Right, yeah, Christ took that judgment, and we are then sealed and protected from that judgment. And if you remember, no matter what happens in this life, what does Paul say at the end of Romans 8? Nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors. That, again, Hooper Nikos. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how many things can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Zero things. Zero things can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that means the tribulations that we face in this life too. What the church goes through in this age, the tribulation that it goes through in this age, cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because God has protected us. He has sealed us. We are His. He loves us in His Son. He cannot love us anymore. He cannot love us any less because He loves us perfectly. Well, that brings us now to our passage tonight as we look at this interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. This interlude comes in two parts. I I almost hesitate to say two visions because in chapter 11 it doesn't start with, then I saw. That's usually an indication that it's a new vision. So really, it feels more like one vision in two parts. So these two parts is, the first one is what we see here in chapter 10. The second one is what we see in the first 14 verses of chapter 11. And these visions then shift the focus from the judgment coming down upon the earth, from uh, from heaven to earth, upon the unrepentant, to the church, and what it's supposed to be doing and its activities during this entire period. So in our passage here, we're going to see the church in in chapter 10 sort of represented by John the Apostle, taking the Word of God, and then preparing then to witness to the world. And then in Revelation 11, we see the church actually witnessing during this time of great trial and martyrdom. So as Richard Phillips, who also wrote a commentary on this, says, beginning in Revelation 10, this vision depicts the church 
as receiving God's Word, holding fast to it, and bearing testimony on God's behalf despite persecution and even martyrdom. Now as we look at Revelation chapter 10, it itself also has two parts. We're getting perilously close to that one question in 27 parts now. But Revelation 10 can be broken into two parts. First you see in verses 1 through 7, this angel and the little book. And then in verses 8 through 11, then John sort of just chows down on this book. He eats the book. Nom, 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 nom. You know, like Cookie Monster. He eats the book up. So first let us look at the angel and the little book in verses 1 through 7. So again, as we said, the sixth trumpet has been sounded. One-third of humanity has been slain. The remaining two-thirds dig in their heels and refuse to repent to God. And then what happens next? Well, John sees here another mighty angel coming down from heaven in verses 1 through 2. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now again, we would again expect to see the seventh trumpet, but instead, this angel, instead of having the seventh trumpet, has a little book. In the Greek, if you really care, it's Bibla Ridian, if you really care about that. But it only occurs four times in the New Testament, all four times right here in chapter 10 of Revelation. Now, the first question that would come to mind is, who is this mighty angel? Well, let's consider his description. He is coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud. He has a rainbow on his head. He has a face like the sun. He has feet like pillars of fire. And he has a little book open in his hand. So who does this sound like to you? All right, sounds like Christ. Sue said Jesus. How many people think it sounds like Christ? Come on, have the courage of your convictions. If you believe it's Christ, raise your hand. It sounds like Christ. <laughs> Mark is very specific. Well, he's often referred to in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. Whenever you see the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament, it often speaks as God at times. And most, uh, most scholars believe that is a pre-incarnate Christ, is the angel of the Lord. But I like the way you think. All right. So most people think it's Jesus. Now, all of these descriptions that we see here denote deity in general, and they can be ascribed to Christ in particular. If you think of the clouds, right? The clouds are reminiscent of that Son of Man imagery that we see in Daniel 7. When in Daniel chapter 7, he gets the vision of the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne, and he sees one like a Son of Man approaching the throne, and he is handed a scroll, just like we saw in Revelation chapter 5. That Son of Man is considered to be the Messiah Christ, and that Son of Man will come on the clouds with the glory of God. The rainbow is symbolic of God's covenant promises. Plus, we see rainbow imagery identified with God's throne. You don't need to turn there, but in the, you can note this reference down Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Uh, we see the prophet Ezekiel sees this. And above the firmament... Now, Ezekiel chapter 1 is very odd. Okay, I'm just going to start off right there. If you've ever read through Ezekiel chapter 1, it's very odd. 
Ezekiel gets this weird vision of these moving parts and this sort of like mobile throne moving around the earth and it's, it's carried by these cherubim and they have, you know, they have faces sort of like what you see in Revelation, but it's a very odd vision. You almost wonder, it's like, Ezekiel, what did you have the night before? You know, maybe you'd have some pizza that didn't agree with you. Maybe you got slipped a Mickey. I don't know, whatever. But you think, Ezekiel, what's going on with you here? But anyway, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26, he says, And above the firmament, that is the sky, over their heads was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with an appearance of a man high above it. And the form of the appearance of his waist and upward I saw, as it were, the color of amber, with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness. Notice how he says the appearance and as it were and like this. and like, It's kind of like what John saw the, you know, in Revelation 9. Where were the locusts? Well, the locusts were like this and they had mouths like this and faces like that and so on and so forth. Very interesting when you try to see these prophets describe exactly what they see when they're given these glimpses of heavenly uh, truth. Verse 28, Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking, uh, so on and so forth. So that is... Uh, Ezekiel's vision. He sees a vision of the throne of God, and above it was an appearance of something like a rainbow. We saw this in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, when we see the heavenly throne room described. The, the throne here we see in Revelation 4, verse 3, and he who sat on it, uh, sat there, was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So again, clouds reminiscent of the Son of Man, the rainbow reminiscent of the throne of God. This mighty angel also has a radiant face like the sun and feet like pillars of fire. And this reminds us of the vision of the exalted Christ that we see in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation 1, verses 15 and 16, His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace, and His voice, uh, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. In his countenance, his face, was like the sun shining in its strength. So clouds, rainbow, face like the sun, feet like fire. This has to be Jesus, right? This has to be Jesus. Maybe. Scholars are split on this. Some think it is Jesus, some think it's just an angel. Now me, I think it's an angel. And the reason I think is an angel, because kind of like where Mark Bailey was going, while Christ is considered an angel, the angel of the Lord, an angel just means a messenger, in the book of Revelation, the, the phrase angel is not really ever used for Jesus in the book of Revelation. He's described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's described as the land slain before time. He's described as Jesus. He's described as Christ, Messiah. So I don't think it's him because of that. Um, like Mark Brown said, it's another mighty angel. If you uh, look, you don't have to, but you can flip back. I think it's Revelation chapter 5, verse 2. So after the scroll is, uh, the, as we see the scroll in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne, 
John then sees a strong angel. That's the same word. Mighty angel. A strong angel um, who, uh, proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seal. Notice that mighty angel, even though he's strong or mighty, is not mighty enough to open the scroll. Only Jesus can open the scroll. So I think it's an angel. Either one that is closely related to Jesus. Maybe it's Michael. Who knows? I don't know. You throw out a, throw out a name. I don't know. Gabriel. My, maybe Michael. Uh, or some angel that comes as a representative of Jesus. Another commentator wrote, The radiance of the angel's appearance marks him as one who bears the image of his master, reflecting the master's glory, and he brings, as he brings, I should say, the master's message. So this angel, probably just very closely related to Jesus, maybe one personally sent by him, one who is sort of bears, in a sense, the image of Christ. Think of how, <coughs> excuse me, think of how when Moses in the Old Testament went up to receive the law a second time in Deuteronomy, or sorry, in Exodus, sorry, in Exodus 33, 34, around there. And he goes up and he's, he's in the presence of God. And when he comes back, what's going on with Moses' face? It's shining, right? It's glowing because he's been in the presence of God. Now, does the glow last? No, it wears off. And he keeps going up. So he veils his face. When the glow fades, he goes back up. He kind of, you know, I think of those little, I, don't know, I built little models when I was a kid. And you had those models that were glow in the dark. And if you held it up to the light long enough, and then you could stand it there and turn off the light, it would actually glow in the dark. It had to sort of receive the light from, you know, from a source before it would glow. Long story short, I think the, it's an angel. But I think... It's an angel that is closely related to Jesus because it has all these images that reflect on Jesus. Now, the next question, of course, would be, what is this little book in his hand? He's got a little book open in his hand. What's that all about? Well, those who think that the mighty angel is Jesus then argue that this little book is that seven-sealed scroll that Jesus received in Revelation chapter 5. He has been given the scroll. He's in, in, the, in chapter 6. He peeled off the seals. Now the scroll is open. So now he's got a little book open in his hand. And I think there's a nice symmetry there that is enticing. It kind of is tempting to sort of hold that view. It kind of fits together until you realize that the word here for little book is different than the word for scroll that we see in Revelation 5.1. And it's reflected in English. It's also reflected in the Greek. You've got Biblion in the Greek for the scroll. You've got Biblaridion for the little book. It's just a diminutive. It's saying a teeny tiny little book. So I do not think this is the same as the scroll from Revelation chapter 5. Maybe it's like a subset of it. Maybe it's like a portion of it. And we'll look at that a little bit later because that plays a role later in Revelation 10. So we'll table the little book for, for a little while at this point. But now we see this angel here. He's standing. He's got one leg in the sea and one leg on the dry land. What do you think that suggests? Yeah. Mark, you're on fire tonight. You are, you're in fuego. <laughs> Did you eat your theological Wheaties this morning? <laughs> okay. Yeah. When you stand on something, it suggests that you have dominion over it, right? You know, when you conquer somebody, you stand on their neck. You've got dominion over them. This angel has dominion over all of creation, the sea and the land. 
It, it suggests sovereignty, just as the exalted Jesus has sovereign authority over all things. It's granted to this angel, and he comes, and he comes in his name, and he also has authority over the land and the sea. And then this angel speaks in verse 3. So this angel cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. Another kind of reference to Jesus if you want. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. So his voice is like a lion's roar, and when he speaks, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now in Psalm 29, I'm going to ask you to turn there, so keep your finger in Revelation 10 and turn to Psalm 29. Psalm 29 here, you've got the voice of the Lord is described in its full potency, in its full awesomeness, if I can use that word, awesomeness. And in Psalm 29, verses 3 through 9. The psalm starts with a little uh, ascribing praise unto God. But then in verse 3, we hear, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The, glor- the God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says, glory. Now, I know if you were counting, I counted it earlier, but just take a wild stab. How many times is the phrase the voice of the Lord mentioned? Just take a wild, don't count it. Seven, right, okay. (laughs) Of course it's seven. The seven thunders roar out, and here we see the voice of the Lord in Psalm 29 mentioned seven times as this voice of the Lord has this mighty power to shake things, to loose things, to destroy things, to make things tremble and skip and move, the mountains skipping and all these things. The voice of the Lord is powerful. Its power and its might is described as thunder, and that's what thunder represents uh, scholars believe, and the, the Bible kind of describes thunder sort of, <clears throat> sort of like the voice of the Lord is like thunder. So this voice utters, and these seven thunders speak. And John, of course, being the faithful scribe, wants to write down everything that the seven thunders have said. But then he is told in verse 4, Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Ah. I mean, we're not going to know what the seven thunders said? I don't like these loose threads. It's like a, it's like a cliffhanger. That no, you know, you never, and it's never resolved. It's like you've got a show that ends with a cliffhanger and then they cancel the show. And you never know how it ends. Well, it's reminiscent of what Daniel in his prophecy sees in Daniel 8.26. He receives a vision. And we see in Daniel 8.26, and the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. 
Or again in Daniel 12, in verse 4, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And again in verse 9, And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So Daniel's given a prophecy and he's told to do what? To seal it. What does that mean? Keep it closed, right? It's sealed. You can't open it. It's until the time of the end. So Daniel's given all these prophecies, but he's told to seal them up because it refers to times in the future. So it's not yet ready. But now when we see Jesus unseal the scroll, now the time is ready. But here we're told not, you know, told, John is told not to write this. Interestingly enough, in the end of Revelation 22, verse 10, John is told not to seal the words of the prophecy of this book. So why withhold the words of the seven thunders? What do you guys think? Why do you think John is told at the end of Revelation, do not seal up the prophecy of this book, but he's told not to write what the seven thunders have said? I was rushed this afternoon. I, I barely finished this study, so I didn't have time to really look this up. What do you guys think? Maybe you can help me out. What's, it wasn't time? Is that your answer? Okay. How many people think we need to know? <laughs> I mean, God says, seal it up. Don't write it. Right? I mean, I, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I looked it up. I, I did look it up. No one really knows. There are two prevailing theories I, I came up with. Some think it's to show that God is not required to reveal everything. Okay. Are you okay with that? I'm okay with that. Is God allowed to keep secrets from us? Sure. He's God. We're not. Some think it's another cycle of judgments that's held back. Because as we see in verse 6, there should be delay no longer. So maybe you know, someone, you know, some scholars think, all right, so you've got seven seals, you've got seven trumpets, and now seven thunders. Here's another judgment. And then he says, no, no, no. Let's seal that one up because we're already at the end. It says there should be no more delay. The seventh trumpet is coming, and that's going to finish it all. But my view is the Bible literally, in this case, is silent over the contents of what this, these thunders are, are, are uttering. So I think everything else is just speculation. Whatever it is, John is told not to write it. And then the mighty angel continues to announce that there will be no more delay in verses 5 through 7. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. So this mighty angel here holds up his hand and he will tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. He swears Almighty God. He holds his hand up and swears an oath to God, the God of heaven and earth, the God who created heaven and earth, that what he says is true and that his final judgment is set. It's as if this angel is in a courtroom and he's giving testimony for fear of perjury. And the angel's solemn testimony is this, 
that there should be delay no longer. God has been patient. He has been long-suffering with the sin of humanity. But as we saw at the end of the sixth trumpet, mankind will not repent even when one-third of their number has been destroyed. Therefore, there will be no delay any longer. Judgment is coming. The seventh angel will blow and the seventh trumpet, he will blow the seventh trumpet, and then the mystery of God would be finished. Now, mystery, we've seen this word in the Bible before. It's not something that you have to find clues to find the answer to. A mystery is something that has been hidden and is now revealed. Something that was hidden to the people of old and now has been revealed to the people in the New Testament. The New Covenant get to to hear it. Some mysteries that you see in the Bible, the mystery of the full salvation of Israel. We saw that in Romans chapter 11. The mystery of Israel's salvation. In Ephesians, we see the mystery, the fact that Gentiles are included in the body of Christ along with Jewish people. All these things are mysteries. The mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. All these things are mysteries. Now, as we said, there are many mysteries in the Bible, but here, the context of Revelation chapter 10 makes this mystery pretty easy to decipher what it is. It means the final outpouring of God's wrath on the unrepented world. This mystery was declared to His servants, the prophets of old. The mystery is this, that the trumpet will sound and that will be the end. There will be no more delay. And the lesson here is simple. God's Word is certain. He prophesied it in the days of old. He sent an angel now to proclaim it with an oath. And that seventh angel will blow his trumpet and fulfill the mystery of God. You can bank on it. That was part one. Part two will go a little quicker as John chows down on this book. So now the voice from heaven speaks again and gives John kind of an odd command in verses 8 and 9. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is, in the, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. So John takes this little book from the mighty angel and he eats it. Eating this book. And that's a strange command, but consider some Old Testament passages. Jeremiah 15, 16. Jeremiah says, the prophet, Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Back to our buddy Ezekiel. Ezekiel 2, verse 8. God tells him, But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like the rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. That imagery kind of pictures to me like a mama bird going up to the baby bird. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Ezekiel again, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. I, moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate 
and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. So what do you think it means to eat God's Word as John eats the book? What do you think that means? Yeah, to eat God's Word, it's to internalize it, to read and meditate on it, to take it in and make it part of yourself. So the prophets ate God's Word so that they can then prophesy to God's people. And God's Word here is likened to food which feeds and nourishes our souls. It's almost as if you remember when we looked at the bread of life, right? Jesus says, eat my flesh. He doesn't tell, he's not telling us to be cannibals. He's telling us you have to take me in as if you are eating me. You have to be in communion with me. Take me in and make me part of yourself. In fact, speaking of Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan, the first temptation, how did Jesus answer Satan? Right. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. So now the angel tells John that eating this little book will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. So in other words, the word of God is bittersweet. It is bittersweet. It's words of mercy, grace, long-suffering, forgiveness, love, uh, etc. are indeed sweet. Right? Psalm 19.10 says, More to be desired, the law of God, are they than gold, yea, much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Or Psalm 119.103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And what could be sweeter to the weary pilgrim than that God has declared us just in His sight in light of the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ? That is the sweetest news anyone can hear. There is no better news than the Gospel of Jesus Christ to a repentant sinner. To hear that your sins are forgiven. Right? David extols God in Psalm 32. How blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose lawless deeds are remembered no more. That is a cause for blessing and rejoicing. It is sweet as honey on the honeycomb. But, this is not a good but, this is a bad but, its certain word of impending judgment is bitter. Because no one wants to go into the world and tell them that certain judgment awaits them lest they repent. No one wants to preach bad news to people. That's bitter. It's bitter. It's bitter because it causes judgment, right? It causes, or I should say, it causes division. It causes people to persecute the church, to, to lash out in hatred against our message. We saw as we go through John's gospel, right? John preaches, the, or Jesus preaches the truth, and he says, Well, the world hates me because I reveal that its deeds are indeed evil. His light shines, and the people hate that. Darkness hates the light. The Apostle Paul likens Christians and the message of the gospel as a double edged sword that brings both life and death. So 2 Corinthians 2. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. My mistake. Sorry. So Paul says here, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 
To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? So here, Paul says of Christians, we are the aroma of death to some. And then we are the aroma of life to others. That's what we are when we preach the Gospel. Okay, So sometimes we smell sweet as honey. (laughs) Other times we smell like death. (laughs) Because we bring a message of judgment. If you do not repent. right? What is... When Jesus came out of his temptation, the first words out of his mouth were what? Repent. John the Baptist, the first word out of his mouth was repent. When the prophets were sent to Israel in the Old Testament, the first words out of their mouth were repent. (laughs) Because judgment is coming. If you do repent, then you can enter the kingdom of God. So John here eats the little book. You can turn back to Revelation 10. He eats the little book in verses 10 and 11. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So the little book is indeed sweet in John's mouth, but makes his stomach bitter. And we know why, because of the bittersweet nature of the gospel. But then the angel commands John, now prophesy again. You have taken my word in. Now go and prophesy to many nations, tongues, peoples, and kings. Now, going back to what we talked about the little book earlier, this is why I think this leads me to believe that the contents of this little book are basically what we're going to see in Revelation chapter 12 through the end of the book. It's sort of like the rest of the vision. Okay, because this is an interlude that goes through the end of chapter 11, then chapter 12 starts a new cycle. It's the rest of the vision. I'm not dogmatic on that. That's just what I think that the little book is. But the task here of the church, sorry, back that up. And we also see our confirmation. If you remember when we looked at the very beginning in Revelation 1.1, we saw that this is the revelation that was given to Christ by God the Father who gave it to an angel who then gave it to John. So you see that transmission, the chain of transmission. And here we see that message being given to John by the angel by whom it was given to him by Christ. So you got that chain of custody going on there. Now the task of the church, though, is no different than John's. John is told to take the word in and prophesy. And that's what we have to do. We have to prophesy about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Because we are in the last days. Right? This is the period we're in. We're in the period of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. We are in this period of time between the the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. So we must preach this bittersweet message of the gospel of the kingdom to a lost and dying world. We need to be the aroma of life to those who believe and accept and repent of their sins. And the aroma of death, unfortunately, that bitterness to those who refuse to repent. We cannot hold back. We have to be this. This is what the church is to do in this interlude. This is what the church is to do while this whole period is coming on. We are to be this witness to the world. 